Hello, welcome to another episode of Analyzing Mormonism. This is episode 25, and we are going to talk about No Ma'am, That's Not History by Hugh Nibley, which is a response... Oh, no, hang on. <laughs> All right. Okay, us. We're responding. We are responding. <laughs> this episode is a response to Hugh Nibley's response to Fawn Brody's book, No Man Knows My History. Perfect. That took us a long time to get right. Okay. That was quite a mouthful. In the episode before this, America read... Um, his little pamphlet, it's like 62 pages long, and I was listening to it again today, and he's like really rude. Yeah, I, I did not like him. <laughs> yeah, it was very hard to get through. I struggled a lot um, with maintaining my composure while reading it, and if you guys listen to it, I hope you can't tell, but you probably can. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun um, editing it, because she was like, she would stop and be like, what the heck? Anyway, um... So I wanted to, to start off with a quote that he gives on page 11 of his little pamphlet. It's out of print, so you can't buy it new. You can find it online, or you can go to some used bookstore in Utah, probably. That's where I got mine. So anyway, he says, Our guide first makes up her mind about Joseph Smith, and then proceeds to accept any and all evidence from whatever source that supports her theory. And then I want to say in reverse, members of the church often make up their minds about Joseph Smith while proceeding to reject any and all evidence from whatever source that contradicts his good character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say specifically the one that makes the most splash in my mind is Martin Harris, that we will accept uh, what he says about Joseph Smith as long as it's positive, but then we're, we don't uh, pay attention to anything else Martin Harris says, uh, which can be kind of crazy. Well, and then even David Wimmer, and we'll talk about this a little later in the podcast, I have these um, slides that I'll put together and make a video. But anyway, David Wimmer, in the same breath that we say, David Wimmer says, he came out and said emphatically, I have never denounced my testimony of seeing the gold plates. I've never said that. In that same pamphlet, he says that Joseph never saw Peter, James, and John, or John the Baptist. Like, we're accepting one part of it, but not the other part. So sort of like Martin Harris. We'll accept that he sees the gold plates, whatever, but we're not going to accept that he saw, also saw the devil. And then all these other really weird things happen. Like, yeah, anyway. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I've broken this down. So he kind of is all over the place because I think he, Hugh Nibley is following her book. But anyway, so I broke it down into sections. And so I broke them down into five main ones and then a section six, which is just, just random other things that he talks about. So the first one that I want to talk about is the origin of the Book of Mormon. So... Um, Nibley refutes the idea that Joseph Smith used Ethan Smith's book, no relation to Joseph Smith, to create the Book of Mormon. And if that's true, then why did B.H. Roberts, the church historian who wrote all seven volumes of the church's history, why did he call the book a serious menace to Joseph Smith's story of the Book of Mormon's origin? Like, he might not have used it. He might have. I don't think he did. I think Joseph didn't need to, as you'll see later. But Yeah, I don't think that he, like... um like copy straight out of it. I don't think he plagiarized out of it. I think there's a good chance that he read it before uh, writing the Book of Mormon, though. Yeah, and and to me, there's no reason to think he he did not read it because it's Joseph references it later in the Times and Seasons as like, oh hey look, this is evidence that the book is true. Um, that was in the 1840s, I think. Um, I read this book as an active member, and I pulled out every every similarity that I could think of in my just having read the Book of Mormon 50 times. And I, and I put all the parallels next to each other. And there's a lot of similarities. Like, it's kind of astonishing. I still don't think he plagiarized it. But it is... Uh, hang on. It, it, we'll, we'll get there. So in this next slide that I have... Do you want to read it? 
It is hard to see how anyone could have avoided the Indian-Hebrew tie-up. So that was by Hugh Nibley. And I think that's really, that's the biggest argument to me as far as these things, because that was Joseph's main focus with the Book of Mormon. He was trying to find an origin to these, these the American Native Americans. Yeah. Like, like, to me, I think of the Twilight books, where Stephanie Meyer wrote this vampire novel. And then after that, it became so popular that after that, everyone was writing vampire novels. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, this was just a popular thing of his day. The mound builder myths and the Indians' origin was just all over in the 1830s. So it's, I don't know, it's just so not a shock to me. Joseph Smith wrote fan fiction about fan fiction? Or just fan fiction, period. Because everyone had the theory, because the Indian Hebrew tie-up was a theory that the Indians are the ancient Hebrews. And so he was just adding his... Right, but fan that's, a, fiction that's on. just a fan fan theory about the Bible, right? So that's okay. Yeah, fan fiction about. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> okay, there's another quote. Um, I'll just have America read it since she read the book <clears throat> in the last episode. <laughs> Instead of an opium dream, we find an exceedingly sober document that never flies off at tangents, never loses the thread of the narrative, which is often quite complicated, is totally lacking in oriental color, in which the sermons are confined to special sections, and which, strangest of all, never runs into contradictions. What outrageous liar can carry the game to the length of the Old Testament without giving himself away hundreds of times? What was your thought when you read that? What? (laughs) Wait. What does he mean by lacking in oriental color? I actually don't know what that means. Like, I tried Googling it, and... Of course, it was just giving me colors. I don't know what that means. But to me, so I underlined the parts that I thought were um, sort of problematic. Um, <coughs> it has been a couple of years since I've read the Book of Mormon. But these ideas that he's pulling out, I think, are totally false. So do you think that the Book of Mormon never loses the thread of the narrative? Like, that's the that's the whole reason it's hard to read through the thing. Because, because it, it goes everywhere. Right, exactly. So, like, it does lo- lose the thre- thread of the narrative. Like, Second Nephi, it, it's just a whole tangent of Isaiah like he's talking about separating himself from his families and then he's just going into all these sermons of Isaiah that if you look at the Isaiah chapters have nothing to do with Christ like it's losing the thread of the narrative and also there's a other way so many other times where he says okay wait hang on going back to the story and so anyway and then never runs into contradictions is another thing that I have a hard time with um even especially looking at the 1830 edition you see a bunch of contradictions even in the Godhead even in who Jesus was like having the name of Christ. He says that he gives the name of Jesus earlier in the book, but then he changes it and says that that he the angel just told him with it. I don't know. To me, it runs into contradictions. It changes the narrative or it loses the thread of the narrative. Plus it definitely had way more contradictions before they started editing the book. Right. Right, exactly. And the whole oriental uh, oriental color, I'm not exactly sure what he means by that or what she means by that. I don't know. And then sermons are confined to special sections. I don't think that would be an evidence that the book is true. I feel like it would be easier if you're making up a story to the next day. You're like, oh, this is today's going to be more spiritual. I don't, I don't know. That part doesn't make sense to me. Why, why he would say that is. Anyway. Okay. So there's another one where he says, the Book of Mormon has suffered particularly from a glib jumping at conclusions by its attackers. The book describes the doings of a lonesome and a solemn people who do not claim for a moment to be the sole inhabitants of the hemisphere. When Brody talks of mound builders and Mongolians, she is not talking about the Book of Mormon at all. She's setting up a straw man for her science to disembowel. 
did you have thoughts? So Mongolians are Asian. Is mm-hmm. that what he meant by oriental color? Probably because the DNA of, of um, uh, these indigenous um, people? people are from Asia. So that's probably what, I can't remember exactly if Brody, I'm sure she pulled that out somewhere, but maybe that's what oriental <clears throat> color means. So, so he says um, that the people, uh, the Book of Mormon does not claim for a moment to be the sole inhabitants of the hemisphere. So he's saying, of course, there are other people here. And that's one of the biggest arguments that people have today is the DNA doesn't match, but those are not the Nephites. We're, we're, okay. They're gone. They're gone from the DNA record. Except there are several verses that I interpret, and I always have, that says that they were the sole inhabitants of of the continent that they landed on, which I guess is America. Right. So according to the Book of Mormon, they should have been exactly what he just said, that they're not. Right. Will, will you go over the list? Sure. Second Nephi verse one, or sorry, second Nephi chapter one, verse six, there shall none come into this land, save they shall be brought by the hand of the Lord. Second Nephi chapter one, verse eight, kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations. Second Nephi chapter one, verse nine, kept from all other nations. And then Ether chapter two, verse seven, land of promise, which was choice above all other lands, which the Lord God had preserved for a righteous people. And then four times after that, it says that they will be swept off if they didn't serve God. So like, to me, it sounds like the continent on which they landed, I'm assuming he means America because Joseph said that numerous times that, that they would be the only ones in this land. Is that what you're getting when you read those? Oh, yeah. And, like, that's what they talk about. That like, oh, um, our, this land was chosen for us, yada, yada. Like, they always talk about this being the chosen land. Right. And then, like, it says again and again, and you'll notice that it says, anyone else who comes here will be brought by the hand of the Lord. And like I said earlier, like I said just a few minutes ago, the Lord says that if they didn't serve him, he would sweep them off the land. So, like, what about the Vikings? What about the the Mayans, like they weren't serving God. There's no record at all of them serving God. Or not the same God. <laughs> <laughs> serving gods. Um, so like that doesn't make any sense. The, so the Book of Mormon is just wrong on both of those parts. Cause like people were here serving different gods and people were here period. <laughs> yes. People were here. They were not, yeah. and they're not Hebrew. Yeah. So, so the fact that Hugh Nibley says is pointing this out doesn't make sense to me because he's read the Book of Mormon clearly, but he just, I don't know. To demonstrate how the book evolved, Brody observes that it improves in style and story as it goes along. That is her version. To others, the first part of the book is by far the most interesting. And that was a claim made by Hugh Nibley, which I think is super interesting. Yeah, and it's pretty funny once you tell us. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so the timeline for the Book of Mormon, I'm just going to go over that really fast. Um, so, when, so what parts of the Book of Mormon were written and when they were written? So the last 116 pages were written in the summer of 1828. And then with them being lost, Joseph t- takes a nine-month sabbatical or hiatus. Hiatus, thank you. I like sabbatical. It's <laughs> a really good word. And then they start again. If you look at the manuscript, it's Mosiah three all the way to Moroni, and that's from April eighteen twenty-nine to June eleventh. And then the copyright was obtained in the middle of of that, um, June eleventh, eighteen twenty-nine. They said it was the last leaf on the left-hand side, and then they go back and they they translate and this doesn't make sense to me but they go back and they translate first nephi to mosiah 2 and that was june 11th through june 30th of 1829 so so long story short the beginning of the book was written last 
Yeah, so Nibley's statement alone proves Brody's point as the first part of the Book of Mormon was written last. So that's the best... Best writing. Yeah. And so this adds to Brody's theory that Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith himself wrote the Book of Mormon as it improves as he goes along. So I don't know why he said that. Like... Because he didn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he's written, Hugh Nibley has written so many books on the church, on its history. I, I, I it just, it just astonishes me that he knows so little. Well, a lot of um, what I got from him while reading his book, I, I, <laughs> I was reading it out loud for the first time um, <laughs> to you guys. So what I got from it as I was reading it is that he was mostly just blustering, like, just saying all of these things he felt about what she was saying. Like, it didn't feel very um, researched. Um, didn't feel like he put a lot of thought into it. He probably rewrote it at least once, you know, like, <laughs> like there was a rough draft and then there was the final draft. That's what it felt like to me. And that, I don't know that that's true, but that's what it felt like. Like, it just seemed very emotional. So, the, so just looking at the one, the copy that I have is called the, it's the fourth printing, 1962, although it was originally copyrighted in 1946. So, like, it must have gone through a, a few um, but editions. The thing, or? Is, the thing is, and, like, yeah, probably that is true. And, uh, again, like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just No, but I I'm think you're right. Like, uh, but um, the thing is, I feel like a lot of the church's teachings appeal to emotion first before anything else anyway. So, like, having an emotional reaction to Fawn Brody is going to work. Like, what did your father person, should I say his name? Should I say your dad? Your <laughs> Just say Dan. What did your dad say about uh, this book? Like, oh, he proved that it was wrong or, or something like that. So, so my dad, he said he wouldn't read... He wouldn't read Fawn Brody's book because this pamphlet of Hugh Nibley's existed. He's never opened either of them. He's never read anything about mm -hmm. either of them. But he was just like, oh, an apologist or somebody has responded to this. The church has responded to it and they've said that it's wrong. So therefore, mm -hmm. you know, it's done. I don't even have to read it. I don't, I don't have to read either book. Right? So that's all he has to do. It does not have to be founded in fact. It does not have to... I mean, literally, it just has to give emotion and be an interesting enough read that that anybody who puts it or like so that anybody who actually picks it up mm -hmm. will got, walk away from this going, Fawn Brody was wrong. Right. Well, then going back to what you're saying about him writing this sort of hastily, I really think he did, and I don't think even the the church apologists use his book at all today. I think that's why it's out of print because nobody cares because they're like, oh, mm -hmm. this is all wrong. There's no point in using this. But then also what you're saying, uh, that he's appealing to emotion. He's very hot-tempered in this. Like, if you if you listen to the last episode, yeah. he's very he's very harsh. And yeah, there was a few times where I wanted to swear at him. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> well, and some of the things he says are just so terrible. Um, but yeah, the church likes to first appeal to emotion and then appeal, or not even appeal to, to yeah, scientific reasoning. It's all about or, belief and your, you know, your thoughts. It doesn't... There's not a lot of the churches based in science or fact at all. You know, it's all, do you believe in such and such and such? Yeah. Can you, like, do you have a testimony of such and such? Well, like, a lot of things are, are based on um, your testimony of whatever. And you can get a testimony just by sitting there and thinking about something. So, like... <laughs> well, and I think it was, I think it was Henry B. Eyring's son, Henry J. Eyring. I think he recently gave a talk... 
And he said that the book of Abraham, he had some questions about it. But then his, yeah, I guess he was talking to his dad. He said, how do you feel when you read the book of Abraham? And he's like, well, I, I feel good. I feel like it's true. And he's like, then just go off that. Mm-hmm, but so that's, mm-hmm. but if that were the case, if you were to just go off your emotions, I feel good reading Harry Potter. Like, I feel really good reading Twilight. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> that would make these books real. So you, it, the appeal to emotion, b- basing those things off, on, as true, it doesn't work. And it would have worked for my 11-year-old self. I really wanted to go to Hogwarts. Like, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Faked my Hogwarts letter so that I could just, just go. Well, where were you going to go? I hadn't thought it through. But... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So another thing that the, about the origin of the Book of Mormon that they that I want to go into a little bit more is the mound builder myth. So Von Brody says, the plan of Joseph's book was to come directly out of the popular theory concerning the mound builders. John Reed, Hugh Nibley's. Hugh Nibley's response. The mound builders actually resemble the Book of Mormon people not at all. Who said they did? The Book of Mormon tells of a people ages removed from the mound builders and very far away. Yet Brody insinuates that because the mound builders of all people do not resemble the Nephites, the Book of Mormon is a fraud. Which I find really interesting. So before I left the church, I was part of this group. We were we called ourselves the Mound Rovers, which is a playoff of Joseph's letter to Emma, where he says that he was roving over the mounds of the once beloved people of the Nephites, blah, 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 blah. Um, however, the... Hugh Nibley also once said, all this took place in Central America, the perennial arena of the big people versus the little people. So he was a Mesoamerican guy. Hugh Nibley, like I have a few of his books, he, and he just said in his last one, the Book of Mormon uh, uh, tells the story of people far removed from the mound builders. The mound builders were over in New York. They were over in Ohio. Like he's saying they're far away. But then you have people like Rod Melodrum, who perpetuates the theory that there is no evidence that the Book of Mormon took place in Mesoamerica, but that the Nephites' ancestors were, in fact, the mound builders. So I find that really interesting. Like, like the biggest, and I feel like they're one of the biggest um, groups right now trying to show that the Book of Mormon actually did take place in America and that they were the mound builders. This is so interesting to me, because as a member, I did not know there was infighting uh, about where the Book of Mormon took place. (laughs) I had no idea. I was just like, oh, the Book of Mormon took place in America. That's cool. Like, no idea where. Did not really care. Um, But I I don't know. I was just concerned with whether or not I knew it to be true. So so another thing that he pulls out, or that they both talk about, uh, Brody and Nibley, are the parallels. And he... He kind of um, jokingly says, oh, like, there can't be parallels. Like, this is all silly. Um, but he pulls out the parallels with Ammon and David and Goliath. He pulls out the parallels, and these are all ones that Brody has talked about, that the Jaredite barges are like Noah's Ark, that the Book of Mormon fortifications and the indigenous fortifications in New York are so similar. Um, he even points out, <laughs> I don't know why he did this. He says, atheism is denounced in the Book of Mormon, and atheists exist on the frontier. Therefore, there are parallels. Therefore, the Book of Mormon is false. Like, it, I don't know, it just seemed kind of silly to me. But then I wanted to point out... Sarcastic. <laughs> sarcastic, yeah. I wanted to point out some other parallels that were not answered or even brought up by Nibley. I don't even know if he's aware of all of these. But so Lehi's vision and Joseph Smith's dad had a vision, and they're almost exactly the same. Like, almost mm-hmm. word for word. Mm-hmm. Like, of the tree and the fruit. Yeah, that's so weird. And, like, I don't know, that would have been a shelf breaker for me, probably, if I'd found that out, well, I remember because it was such a, an important, like, uh, what do you call it? Like a metaphor? Is, is it a metaphor for our life? Mm-hmm. It was such an important metaphor 
for um, being in the church and, and yeah, yada, it's a, yada. it's a big it's a big it's deal. one of those big stories in the Book of Mormon. Um, and and Joseph Smith. So another parallel is Joseph Smith Jr.'s first vision, as well as other people's first visions or vision stories. And he brought that up too. They both brought it up, like, oh, this is a normal thing. But like, why didn't that strike Nibley as being a little bit problematic? Like, like that everybody was having visions everyone was of God. having visions of God. I shouldn't say everyone, but like, like you're not a large special. number of people. Joseph Smith is not special. One thing as a member that that touched me were the chiasms in the Book of Mormon. And that's just like inverted parallelism where they, it's A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A. Um, and it's supposedly a Hebrew style of writing. But if, if you look at Joseph Smith's writings and you look at the Doctrine and Covenants, you look at the Book of Abraham, they all have chiasms in there. And those are contemporary writings. They're, they're, they're not ancient Hebrew. So that doesn't, so that parallel doesn't matter anymore. Like, or I mean, like it, it matters showing that that doesn't, that it's not an evidence for the Book of Mormon. Right. How did you, when did you realize that there was chiasms also in DNC in the Book of Abraham? After I left the church. Um, how did you not, sorry if this is mean or personal, but like, how did you not notice that before you? Well, I wasn't looking for them. I, I was only looking for them in the, in the Book of Mormon. I was charting them very carefully in the Book of Mormon. And then when I caught wind that, oh, these are just everywhere, I was like, oh. So I started reading his letters and I started looking at them and I started looking at Doctrine and Covenants. And then I started pulling all of them out. And, and even in the book of Abraham, these are all contemporary. These are all, the, the, all these things happened in the 1800s. They are, they were written by a guy from New York. Like it's all the same author. So it's, so anyway, that I don't know how to answer that question other, other than I was just, you just weren't looking for them. I wasn't looking. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things I think in our lives and the church benefits from it. I think if you aren't looking for it, you won't see it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, Brody and Nibley point out in Masonic rituals in the temple, Brody just sort of brushes it off, which I think, or not Brody, excuse me. Nibley just sort of brushes off the Masonic rituals and how similar they are to the temple, which I think is silly. Like, like we know now, like we have, they're just word for word Masonic. So like, I, I don't even want to go into that because that's just foolish of Nibley to say that. Yeah. Well, I... I think that there are apologists for that. Maybe that's why he doesn't go into it. It's like my mom said, you were there, um, she said that they were just the same rituals that they did at the... Um, the ancient uh, temple? The Solomon's temple? Yeah. They, she, she she believes that they're just the same rituals that they did at the Solomon's temple. And um, so, there's, so they've been going back for so far, for so long, that the Masons just also have it. The Masons did believe that, but the last 200 years, um, they, I think it was, it's at least 200 years. The last several years, they, the, all the Masons know that that's not true. There's no link to Masonic rituals and the, and Solomon's temple. Yeah. There, just none. There just isn't. There just isn't. Okay. So one thing I just thought was interesting, um, I wanted to get your take on this. Um, so Fawn Brody says there is no new sermon on the mount, like in the Book of Mormon. And Hugh Nibley says, why should there be? The old one is good enough. And I just thought that was interesting. Like, Christ, why why would Christ come all the way to America and deliver the exact same message to the Nephites? We already have that book. It's already going to be printed. So what's the purpose of Jesus having the same record twice? Like, you, you know, to, I... To prove that Jesus definitely said it because he just wouldn't be coming up with new things. I think it's, I think that's silly to think. I, no, I'm, no, yeah. I think, I think that's a very good point. It's kind of like the same idea as Bible, Bible, we have a Bible, mm -hmm. which is a, a 
a thing that Mormons lean on. It's like, oh, you don't want more good things? Well, like, you didn't actually come up with very much more. Yeah, they're, like. <laughs> but seriously, though, like, 20 to 30% of the Book of Mormon is just straight from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, like, and Nibley also points that out. He says it's foolish to think that he plagiarized the Bible just because he writes in King James English. But, like, he, that's not just what he's doing, Nibley. He's, Joseph is pulling out verses and chapters and chapters Straight and from quoting them directly from the King James exactly. Bible, which would not have been printed when the right. Book of Mormon was supposed to have taken right. place. But not only that, but like that specific edition of the of the book of the Bible mm-hmm. and all the errors. Like, anyway, yeah. Okay, uh, will you read this quote by Nibley? Colossal. The hard research necessary to produce the Book of Mormon, even as a work of pure fiction, must have been colossal, and if there is no such research, then its production was at least a hundred times harder. The remembering of all those details without notes, the preservation of an even tone and regular flow, and that, without any revision or rewriting or shuffling of notes, the mere writing of a big book that takes hard thinking. So, So I label this one colossal or calculated. And so I listed off at least five things. There's probably more, but we're just going to go with these five. Maybe we can share every other one. Um, so number one, so Joseph Smith, in Lucy Mack Smith's biography, Joseph Smith was telling Book of Mormon stories to his family and then telling them not to tell anyone else as early as 1823. So he's coming up with these stories in his teens. So like... So he's been thinking about them for a very long time. Right. And not, before, and wouldn't that before be before he got the Book of Mormon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, before he got the plates. He the got plates. the plates in twenty eight or twenty seven. Yeah. <coughs> so he's been making up these stories long before he had access to the plates. Yeah. The details in number two is the details in the book are often said once and never repeated, such as names, etc. Yeah. So he talks about the details, but like if you look at the Book of Mormon, he'll say a place name that are the unique names, but then he'll never repeat them again. So like. That's not that's not really hard to do, right? But like he's not returning back to and developing characters right. or places. And, and yeah, if you look at character development alone, it's just really poor. It's just really weak mm-hmm. in the Book of Mormon. True. Um, number three, the loss of the hundred and sixteen pages, the nine months of silence that followed, and that he never rewrote those pages might count to many as shuffling as a shuffling of notes. Yeah, I would count that as a shuffling of notes. Like <laughs> yeah. you can't prove, uh, or you can't. What am I trying to say? Somebody could prove that he can't remake it, so he's got to just, oop, that's gone. Yeah, the the biggest testimony builder would not, to me, would be that if he just retranslated exactly as it was before. Mm -hmm. But he can't. If he had even attempted it. But, like, he never did that. And to me, that's only a fraud would not, only a fraud would not be able to produce what he'd produced before. Am I saying that right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Number four. The Book of Mormon has been changed over 5,000 times since it was first written. Yeah, and we said that earlier. So, like, he says, remembering all those details and even tone regular flow without any revision or rewriting, that's false. It's been it's been edited. There's been 5,000 changes since 1830. That's a lot. Yeah. And some of them are very significant. A lot of them are grammar, um, but a lot of them are significant. significant. Mm-hmm. Number Number five. Joseph grew up with the Mound Builders, 12 Tribes Theory, and was surrounded by the indigenous people. And he, in New York, he even grew up around the Onondaga Indians where he lived. And if you look at the story of Zelf, um, he says that Zelf was a, a white Lamanite warrior under the prophet Onondaga. So, like, that 
um, just like they even use the name. <laughs> he just used the same name. Like that. I, that's not inspiring. Anyway, <laughs> I wanted to say one more thing. I think that um, we're not assuming here that Joseph Smith was an intelligent man. I think he was very intelligent and had a story writer's brain, and he was probably like way, way more intelligent than we give him credit for. And like, I don't know. People assume that that he's like this unintelligent farm boy. I think that's completely false. I, he might have been even a savant. I don't know. He's just really good at making up stories. And I don't know. I think that they don't take that into account when they oh, talk yeah. about his ability to write this book. Yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah. So we know from Lucy Max Smith, he, he's telling stories. He, he was very... He could get the attention of an entire room just by telling his stories. And then if you look at the paper by William Davis in Dialogue, he wrote a, a paper about Joseph Smith's education. And we'll go into that later, too. But, like, Joseph was very educated. He, he was still in college, right? Or he was... He was so taking classes. In his 1826 trial, as we talked about earlier, he says himself that he was going to school by the age of, still at the age of 20. Like, he, this boy is not dumb. This boy is very intelligent. But also, like, I, I do know authors today that make up, that write books. Who's that famous? Sanderson? Brandon Sanderson? Hmm. He writes all of his own books. And he comes out with a new book, like, once a month. Like, one every month or one every two months. Mm -hmm. So, like, just because... Nibley can't fathom it happening. Doesn't mean it has never happened before. Exactly, exactly. Like, um, Julia and I both dabble in writing, and we can tell you it's not as difficult as people are acting like it is. Like, I don't know. Yeah, one writer says, just make the illusion of that you have a world, and then and then go from there. Like, you don't actually have to have, like, everything figured out in order to write a book that mm -hmm. comes across as seeming real or making sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so another thing about the Book of Mormon, or the gold plates, too, that they bring up is the witnesses. And um, so there are several problems with the witnesses. One of them is that they give different accounts. The newspapers in 1830 claim that the witnesses all gave different accounts of seeing the plates. And one of them, I think it was David Wimmer, he says that he just went out into a field with Joseph, and jo he picked up the golden plates, looked at them, said they were authentic, set them down, and then they walked away. Like that's super different from the story that we were that we all grew up hearing about them going into the woods. Like, but the newspapers say, oh, everyone knows that they're giving different accounts. So like, there's little consistency. And also like, if you look at the 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 signed witness statement in the beginning of the Book of Mormon, that's not even signed. Excuse me, it's only signed by one person. But like, that's not a witness statament. If you're all just adding your names. I don't know if that's like a legal... It's like a class register. Like, uh, yep, I was here. Like, yeah, whether there, there's or not you no paid unique attention. perspective. <laughs> like, I don't know. So I don't, I don't find that very credible anyway. But do you want to read the second one? Number two, spiritual eyes. Martin Harris and David Whitmer say that he only saw the, the plates with his spiritual eyes. Yeah, so like, I don't... Like, we know that Martin Harris... <sighs> saw a lot of weird things with his spiritual eyes yeah in fact he he would told a story once of a devil sitting on his chest and it and he couldn't breathe very well and like it like what it sounds like sleep paralysis <laughs> <laughs> um so number three um is that a lot of these witnesses were unreliable and 
again, a lot of them were in the Widmer family. Um, but Oliver Cowdery was a rodsman, and he used divining rods, which usually people use them to find things. In the Book of Commandments, Joseph Smith implied that he would use the rods to translate. I don't, I don't know how that would work, so that's confusing oh, you to can me. Do them. You can use them for a lot of things. But how do you translate with, with the divining sure, rods? I don't know. Maybe you just hold it. Is it like a know. Ouija board and it points you to letters or like... I have no idea. That's really confusing. I have no idea. But you can do whatever you want with What's whatever you rods? want. Because they're, they're magical. So you just... You just you know, that is the strangest like a wand. thing. You can do whatever you want with a wand. <laughs> like, do you just hold it and make a wish? Or do you have to point it at things? Yeah. You know? Do you have to say something? Or do you just... Think just, it? Just think it. There's so many ways to to interpret that. <laughs> so another thing is that Martin Harris, um, he had seen the devil as a jackass, and he was prone to having visions, and David Whitmer also had a seer stone. To me, these are just, all all three of the witnesses especially were very much... Um, magical worldview. Yeah, magical worldview. That doesn't make them reliable to me. Like, I would I would trust somebody who is scientific, somebody who, had, who was studied... I don't think any, like, Cowdery was a teacher, but, like, I don't know. <sighs> what was he teaching? I don't remember. That's a good question. Um, Number four, vision only. A few witnesses implied that the plates were seen in vision only, which would be, like, those spiritual eyes, right? Right, exactly. Um, anyway, so, yeah, just seeing them in a vision, the, the same thing, yeah, the, you're not actually seeing them. I wonder what induced these visions. Like, was Joseph Smith telling them what they saw? So that's another thing that, that's interesting is that when Martin Harris, so when the three witnesses go to the woods to see the angel appear with the gold plates, um, Martin Harris assumes that it's not happening because of his wickedness. So he leaves, and Joseph Smith sort of leads the group into this vision of seeing the angel. And then Martin Harris goes and prays, and he prays, and he repents, but he's not... He can't have the vision by himself. He doesn't. Joseph goes over and finds him, and then Joseph leads, it seems to, in my mind, seems to lead Martin to having this vision. Why couldn't Martin just have it alone? Yeah, I once, don't know. That's just kind of repented, Yeah, once he'd repented, shouldn't God have shown him the plates? Right. He didn't need Joseph there. Right. And then, like, the eight witnesses, he took four into the woods or in a room in his house. I can't remember. See, there's different stories, but, like... Was this the uh, one where, where they were like, we don't see anything, and he's like, what? You wicked oh, people? Yeah, see, again, different stories. Um, there, was a, there was a story where Joseph brings a, a box, and everyone looks in, all the witnesses look in, and they're like, we don't see anything, and Joseph's like, it's because you lack faith, and you kneel down and pray until you see them. And then they all are convinced that they see the plates. So, but also, like, in my mind, I'm thinking, like, if you were to see a set of plates... That doesn't automatically mean that Joseph Smith translated them correctly into the Book of Mormon. Right. That's so, a like, good point. So even so even if they did see these supposed plates, like, like it could be saw, the Book of Abraham where Yeah, people just, saw like, the Book of Abraham this. and it's a totally terrible translation. It's totally incorrect. People saw the Kinderhook plates and it's a, it's an incorrect translation. So then seeing the gold plates doesn't really say anything about the Book of Mormon being true. Like the plates could one hundred percent have been real and Joseph you know, by um, by all his other attempts to translate, those didn't work. Yeah, that's a very good point. I never even thought about that. Like, that's a very good point. Like, they could totally be, like, a physical object that we no longer know where it is. It's 
<laughs> I guess it's buried in the Hill Gamora or something. He's still probably like like he couldn't have translated correctly because he didn't correct correctly translate anything else. Yeah, that's a very good point. I never thought of that. Yeah. Okay. So another thing, it seems one like one of the biggest things about this pamphlet is. Um, Nibley is mad about how Brody characterizes Joseph Smith. So I just wanted to pull out a few of those things um, as um, this section two, I guess. Um, so Fawn Brody says, there are few men who have written so much and told so little about themselves, which I just thought that that's a, just a very poetic. She just writes really well, I think. Yeah, she was fun to read. Mm-hmm. And Hugh Nibley said, which is simply to say that though Joseph Smith tells a great deal about himself, Brody chooses not to believe it. Okay, so... I made a list of things that Joseph leaves out of his life story, things that I didn't know about or the members didn't know about until much later. Yeah, all of these Uh, are upsetting for me. (laughs) Yeah, so number one is the treasure digging. If you look through all of church history, it's just been scraped and washed out of it. Like, But he was involved anywhere between 18 to 40 treasure digs. And I had no idea growing up. I had no idea. Yeah, me neither. Number two, um, occultic practices. For example, how he dressed in black and rode a black horse to obtain the golden plates. And at 2 a.m. or something like that, he had to do it. That's such an occultic thing, too, and nobody ever talks about that. And, like, some of the times the the, the treasure would disappear, be, like, oh, and yeah. they'd see just the corner, and it would, just, like, just, like disappear oh, yeah. back into the ground. Yeah, it's, like, it's crazy. What the heck? Oh, and, like, then he sacrificed roosters and dogs. And dogs and, and sheep and... To, to find these things. And then they would march around. They would put little stakes in the ground. They'd march around and chant. And then they, one guy um, held a sword and marched around to try to keep the spirits away. Like, like all very um, witchcrafty. Which, super I mean, witchcrafty. If you believe in witchcraft, that, that is totally cool. But that is not the same things that we are taught in the Mormon church. <laughs> yeah. The, in fact, the, in fact they're, in fact, they're the, supposed to be evil. Yeah. In fact, like uh, my stepmom... Um, this is really random, but my stepmom was very against the Harry Potter books being in, in the public schools and being in the public library. She, um, she wrote papers, she contacted people, she just wanted that off the shelf because it was, it was magic. It was bad. It, and it was such a good read, so it's too <laughs> tempting for kids. So, yeah, I feel like the church says magic is bad. Magic is the opposite. Is like Satan's way of doing the, the spirit. I don't, I don't know, but we've always been, or I've always been warned in my church experience against magic. Okay, number three, education. Joseph even testifies that he was attending school at the age of 20 and studying the Bible since age 12. We talked about this. Yeah, we talked about that before. And, and uh, yeah, in his 1832 account, he says that he's been studying the Bible from age 12 to 15 and realized himself that he already knew that the, none of the churches were true. Um, 12 is pretty young to be a Bible scholar to me. Yeah, that's yeah. a very good point. Yeah. So number four is scrying. Um, the church's history is scrubbed clean of any mention of his rock and a hat. So this is, you know, very similar to treasure digging and occultic practices. But just having this stone in general is, um, has been left out of church's history. In fact, the church says, oh, the Urim and Thummim was used, they used those words also to mean the seer stone. Like Joseph did so, he tried so hard to get rid of it that now it's interchangeable almost because... Why did he try so hard to get rid of it? Because it's weird. I I think because it's magic. It's mm-hmm. it's not. Wasn't didn't you tell me about 
because other people started having seersones. Oh, yeah. Did you mm-hmm. say David Wimmer had a seersone? Oh, like almost all of these people. It was so common a, to have a seersone. Yeah, Brigham Young had a bloodstone. And like, so everybody had one, so he had to be special. And so mm-hmm. the, the power of God had to come through him and not his stone anymore. So he, um, anyway, that's what she said to me. Right, yeah, and that's what, one thing Fawn Brody, I think it's Fawn Brody, where she points out that he, the power was coming from the stone, and he needed it to come from himself. Like, it was taking the spotlight, so he um, slowly got rid of it and... Um, then he was the he was the conduit of revelation. That makes sense because in like every um, fantasy book I've ever read, like people can just steal your stone and then the power just goes with them. So or like, the wand or whatever yeah, magical exactly thing. the amulet or whatever. So you gotta you gotta keep the power in yourself. Right. Uh, otherwise, it can just be taken. Right. Somebody else can be the prophet of God. Yeah. That would be just very unfortunate. Yeah. All right, number five, 1826 trial. So Joseph's trial was, until recently, whitewashed from the church's history. Yeah, I did not know that he was ever on trial. Um, Like, no, yeah, never on trial. I thought that he, like, was a perfect citizen until the day he was martyred, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, So number six is polygamy. He had the Nauvoo Expository destroyed because it told the people that he was a polygamist. Both of those things are, like, very bad. <laughs> like, I didn't know, like, I to the day that you told me, I had already, like, decided the church wasn't true. And then you were like, yeah, he had, like, 30-something wives. And I was like, no, that doesn't make sense. I'm pretty sure Joseph was only married to Emma. That just sounds <laughs> what, well, I said the same thing about the rock man. <coughs> but, um, yeah, anyway. But also having the Nauvoo Expositor destroyed and that being the reason that he was in jail and uh-huh. then was murdered like holy cow yeah that is such a big deal and like ugh, like the reason he was killed we're gonna just cover up the reason that he was can like uh-huh. that blows my mind yeah but the church loves the persecution side and will say oh no he was killed because he was bringing this church and saying oh, wanted to stop it, it. Yes, Satan had to stop the great stone from rolling forth over the earth. Okay, so this is just something I wanted to pull out. Also, Von Brody says, Almost never in these days did Joseph step outside himself and look with surprise and humility upon what he had become. And Hugh Nibley said, How does she know? How can she check up on such a deeply subjective matter? By pure intuition, to be sure. He's always making fun of her woman's intuition. That made me yeah. mad. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm pretty so sure they're talking. Stuff. I'm pretty sure they're talking about the Nauvoo period, whenever he's like rising, um, in sort of in the ranks or rising to glory. He's the, he's the mayor. He's all these different things. He, he, I'm pretty sure she's referring to his, his high, his peak, um, and he, and Nibley's like, well, how does she know? Like, a lot of what he criticizes her about is her, her trying to read his mind when you write a biography about somebody i think that's a natural thing to do i think that's to try to see like, where they're where what what they're thinking when they do like these what actions your job is because like nobody wants to just read a list of things that have happened like, right you want to try to figure out what they like what was going through their head and like a really good biographer can give you a good idea yeah and he's just mad because the evidence that she chooses to pull out says very different things than what nibley has grasped or thought about or whatever. Or decided is the truth. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, so with this pure intuition idea that he mocks, um, so she talks about him, um, She ne- he never looked outside himself with surprise and humility. But like his, anyways, these are very things that I find like evidence that evidence. it's not just intuition. 
Right. Number one, Joseph boasted in his abilities above that of Christ. People often say that that speech is taken out of context, but please read the whole thing. The whole thing in the church history is just so boastful and so arrogant and just the whole thing. Like, not just that one line. We're like, I've kept a church together and Christ never even did that. Like, anyway, it's just terrible. Um, The second one is that Joseph Smith ordained himself a king over the whole world. So, like... Yeah, he's not stepping out himself. Yeah, with that, humility. That, that shows a surprising lack of humility. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then number three, Joseph often threatened men and women with ruin, damnation, and sometimes with an angel wielding a flaming sword. Yeah, so like, um, again, um, that doesn't sound like um, humility to me. Like, I don't even threaten people with things that I can accomplish. <laughs> <laughs> like, just angels with, with, with flaming swords. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Um, and so also this idea of him being ordained as king, he nimbly says, Brody sees, sees in this the Nauvoo Expositor. So in the Nauvoo Expositor, he, they have a reference to him being a king. He says, this is an unmistakable allusion to Joseph's kingship for which virtually no other evidence exists. So he just discredits the whole thing. He's like, only this one thing, only the Nauvoo Expositor says anything about him being a king. It's an illusion. It's not real. Brody can't run with this because there's no other evidence that he was a king. But, so you have the Nauvoo Expositor, which is an evidence. William Marks in Zion's Harbinger in 1853 says that Joseph was ordained a king. On the Joseph Smith Papers website, the Council of 50, April 11th, 1844, Joseph was ordained a king. And also the second anointing, I'm going to use this as a source or as an evidence. The second anointing part of it is that you are ordained, that you are ordained a king. And so, like, if we're still doing this to members today... If that's still happening, if, if members today are still being ordained as king, why, why would we think that Joseph wasn't ordained a king? Like, yeah, he definitely would have had the highest. Um, yeah, so, like, maybe Nibley hasn't had the second anointing. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, but, like, it's silly to, it's silly for Nibley to. Maybe just, he thinks that that's a separate thing, like, ordaining yourself king over the world versus, you know, king over, um, what do they say in the. What are you kings of? When I don't know. Ordained. Uh, <laughs> second anointing. I haven't been. I haven't ever seen the second anointing. I don't. I don't remember. <laughs> um, but you were ordained. It's not to become a king. It's you are a king. And anyway, so it, so Nibley's just not informed, or he's choosing to reject it, even though there are there is more evidence. But even the church says Joseph was ordained a king. Like it. I don't know. And then Hugh Nibley says, Is this history to present as facts what a man might have or could have even possibly would have been thinking on an occasion when, (laughs) far from revealing his thoughts, he covers them up, is a good game. But a book built up up of alternate layers of psychological speculation and haphazard sources that only support them if accepted with a certain peculiar interpretation, such a book is not history. Yeah. um, He uses so many words. Yeah, he, he does. <laughs> like a really long sentence. Um, so I just think that, I just thought that was really interesting and pretty much his whole argument against Brody is that is that she's trying to read his Joseph mind. Smith doesn't give his thoughts, so why are you trying to figure out what they are? Yeah, I just think that's silly and not very kind of him. Mm-hmm. Um, so topic number three that I wanted to discuss was the first vision. And this quote I just really liked. It's, um, he says, Hugh Nibley says, the argument of silence is always a suspicious one. So I, I just really like that, um, even though I I think that the first vision's argument from silence is a very good one. Um, I just like that. 
So Fawn Brody claims that because Joseph Smith's first vision account wasn't recorded until 18 years later, actually it was 12, the 1832 account was hidden in the church's vault, but she didn't know that. So she says it's 18, but the historical record is 12. 12. And that because none of the newspapers, letters, diaries, etc. published anything about it, the first vision must not have actually taken place. So Hugh Nibley explains this away by saying, in essence, of course the newspapers didn't publish it. They didn't publish anything about the revivals. Why would they take notice of Joseph's vision? Joseph said he only had his family and one, or Joseph said he only told his family and one Methodist preacher. Well, there's another quote here that maybe you can read before we discuss. That Joseph Smith should not noisily divulge the great and sacred things he had been ordained he had been ordered to keep secret does not seem possible to Brody. If the first vision was so soul-shattering, how, she asked triumphantly, could it have passed totally unnoticed in Joseph's hometown? Joseph reported his vision only to his family and to a minister he thought he could trust. It was the minister who caused the trouble. Okay, so this is me. That Joseph Smith told his family the vision at all is also an argument from silence. Personally, I don't think Joseph Smith told his family at all about the first vision because nothing in what they do or say or whatever have any reflection of Joseph Smith having told them the first vision. Um, so I made a slide. Did anyone tell anyone, did Joseph tell anyone about his vision? <clears throat> so in the publications, of course, the visions don't appear in any journals, letters, diaries, or anything. Even Lucy's letter to her brother in 1831 ignores the vision entirely. She just skips right over it. And there's no reason why she would have done that because she's trying to convince him that the church is true. Like that's, so it's just not written down anywhere, period. He, there's no evidence in writing that he told his family. Um, and then Presbyterianism. In 1824, Lucy and four of her children joined the Presbyterian church. So again, his family is not behaving as though he has told them this vision. Or that his church is the only true church. They went and joined another church. Yeah, they must have just been, if that, if he did tell them the vision, they were like, oh, well, we're going to ignore you. Even though you're telling me literally Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterian, Presbyterianism is not true. They're just going to go against what he said right after he sees God and Jesus and join it anyway. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But also the preachers, Joseph himself claims that he was being persecuted by many religious leaders. He says it again and again and again in the church's history. William Smith gives the names of the preachers. He gives two of them. To two of the names, and Reverend Walters found those those particular preachers, looked in their journals, and they talked about the, they weren't even in Palmyra until 1823 or 24, maybe 24 and 25. So they, the, there were no revivals in, the eight, there was no revivals in 1820, and those specific preachers weren't assigned to Palmyra until the 24 and 25, and they don't say anything about Joseph at all. So 24 and 25 is how many years after the vision supposedly takes place? Uh, four or five years. Okay. So, so the record's completely absent of the first vision. And like, also, if everyone was seeing God and Christ, I don't think a Methodist preacher or Presbyterian preacher would be shocked at all. And yeah, that's another thing is why would these preachers, why would anybody be persecuting him right. uh, for having seen God just like everybody else? Like, right. Like, what's the big deal? So yeah, I'm of the opinion looking at the evidence that Joseph did not actually tell his family about the vision at all. Um, and the ministers that they point out, their their history is empty of it, too. I think that you, you've talked about this before, but also, like, there were no revivals. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, there's just no... They just weren't there. So 
him referring to that as like the start of the reason why he's questioning like it doesn't make any sense yeah this might be random but um i was looking at a list yesterday of from fair mormon they were saying um they were trying to say that the the, the first vision had been published in the 1830s and uh, but they say oh the beginning elements of the vision were published in these papers and i looked through all eight of their claims and they're all saying like they're all alluding to the um, the revivals or Joseph being confused by which church to join, but none of them say anything about a first vision. So it's like saying, talking about a revival or that Joseph was confused is not a first vision. Okay, so Hugh Nibley also says, if silence in the newspapers is proof of anything, then Joseph Smith never at any time claimed to have had the vision, which Brody knows is false. So I'm not exactly sure what what he's trying to point to when he says this. Because, like, which Brody knows is false. So Joseph Smith's first vision wasn't published in any newspaper until March 1st of 1842. And it was published in the Times and Seasons. And outside of Mormonism, outside of the church and my own research, the first non-Mormon newspaper that referred to the first vision was called The Antidote to Mormonism and the Infidel Error. And that was published in 1857. And then the first anti- there's not anti. The first non-Mormon book that referenced the first vision was Mormonism Exploded by Andrew Hepburn in 1855. Hugh Nibley doesn't give a lot of um, space for this one, but I thought it was important, and we've said this in past podcasts too, but the fourth one is the communion with the angels. So angels, in, I just want to talk about angels in the historical record in general. So I mean like his visits to Angel Moroni, uh, Peter, James, and John, that's basically that's basically all. <laughs> but anyway, Brody is quoting Dogberry in her book, and she says, or he says, it is well known that Joseph Smith never pretended to have any communion with angels until long after the pretended finding of his book. So let me let's talk about the timeline for a second. So Joseph Smith says he sees the vision, or he sees God. <laughs> Joseph Smith says he sees God and Heavenly Father. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Joseph Smith says he has the first vision in 1820. I think it's in 1823. He says he's visited by an angel, Moroni. And he's praying, and the angel morning says, okay. Um, he comes like three times in the night, and then once again the next morning. And then Joseph says that for, for the next four years, on the same day in September, he goes to the Hill Cumorah, sees Moroni, goes to the Hill Cumorah, sees Moroni, goes to the Hill Cumorah, sees Moroni. And then for the last time, he's able to go and obtain the plates or whatever, you know. However that works out. 24, 25, 26, 27. He gets the records in 27. Anyway, so Dogberry is saying that Joseph Smith never actually said that he had he saw, had any communion with angels before he says he gets the plates in 1827. And so, anyway, so, like, but also the Palmyra revivals, if they didn't happen until, like, 25, which the historical record says they didn't happen, then he would only have space for one visit to the El Camorra in September. Anyway, so, so it, that doesn't line up either. But, anyway, so Nibley also says... Do you, want to, do you want to say his? Yeah, so Nibley says, There are things, especially if they are of a transcendent and soul-shattering nature, which one does not run off to report to the press and the neighbors. So Nibley's saying the reason he, the reason the historical record is silent about the angels is because it was... It's too important. It's too it's, important. It's sacred. But then my curiosity is that as soon as Joseph says that he has the plates, the story of the angels everywhere. Yeah, they talk about it all over the place. So why would it be so sacred that he never talks about it? And then all of a sudden it's okay to talk about it? Yeah. So that doesn't make any sense. But also in speaking about angels, there, the other incidents with the angels is about the priesthood 
um, obtaining the priesthood at the Susquehanna River. So although obtaining the gold plates does have angels, the restoration of the priesthood does not. As we've said before, there are several people in church history that say that Joseph was never visited by Peter, James, and John, and he was never visited by John the Baptist. So, which is like the pivotal key part, in my opinion, that sets the church aside from all the other religions is because we have the proper authority mm-hmm. to act in God's name because of these priesthoods or because of the priesthood. Which the Catholics also claim, by the way. Yeah, and the Catholic Church says that they were, that they ne- there was never an apostasy. They, they've mm-hmm. been stuck, they kept with it. And our church claims that there was an apostasy and these things need to be restored. But William McClellan in Church History, he says, I joined the church in 1831. For years, I never heard of John the Baptist ordaining Joseph and Oliver. I heard not of James, Peter, and John doing so. As to the story of John the Baptist ordaining Joseph and Oliver, on the day they were baptized, I never heard of it in the church for years, although I carefully noticed things that were said. So he was looking for it, couldn't find it, and it's just not there. All right, and then David Whitmer said, I never heard that an angel had ordained Joseph and Oliver to the Aaronic priesthood until the year 1834, 1835, or 1836 in Ohio. I do not believe that John the Baptist ever ordained Joseph and Oliver. This is not the the only time David Whitmer speaks out about this. There are at least two or three other times where he says, no, this didn't actually happen. And then Grant Palmer, who is a current LDS historian, he says, accounts of angelic ordinations from John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John are in none of the journals, diaries, letters, or printed materials until the 1830s, until the mid-1830s. So Brody is right in quoting Dogberry, saying that it is well known that Joseph never pretended to have any communion with angels until long after the pretended finding of his book. At least in that sense. So, I don't know. Like, that was big for me. Anyway. Okay, so topic number five that I wanted to discuss is the book of Abraham. And so they, in there, he, they both allude to this story or tell the story of the Greek Psalter. Do you want to read it? A man named Henry Caswell visited Joseph Smith one day to see if he could translate a certain book he had. He visited him on April 19, 1842 in Nauvoo. Caswell knew that his book was Greek translation and of the Psalms, but he wanted to expose him as a fraud. After examination, Joseph says, Joseph says, This book I pronounce to be a dictionary of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Caswell then confesses to the entire room that Joseph was a base imposter and that the book was just a Greek translation of the Psalms. Joseph then stepped out of the room. So um, that's a story that Brody used it as evidence he can't actually translate. Hugh Nibley says it sort of mockingly. He's like, that it was only given in one place, so we can just discredit the whole story. It never actually happened. It wasn't only in one place. It was in two places. It was... Um, Coswell um, published it in his own book called Three Days at Nauvoo, and it was published in the Warsaw Messenger in 1843. But even even if this story, whether or not the Greek soldier story actually happened, it doesn't matter. That we actually have the Book of Abraham scrolls and the Kinderhook plates is enough to answer the question of whether Joseph Smith was able to translate. So it, it essentially is just another story similar to ones that we have proof of. Yes, yeah. So it's like... Even if you throw this one out, like Nibley wants to do, it doesn't matter. We have we have enough to go off of to say mm-hmm. of whether or not. And he it translate. would fit with his way of being. Like that that sounds right. Yeah, that's then my opinion. Yes, like he's he's kind of hot headed or mm-hmm. and and prone to to making up big things and <clears throat> seeming really grandiose. 
Well, yeah, and, and especially about the Book of Mormon specific, or excuse me, especially about the Book of Abraham specifically, the mummies, Joseph Smith says, oh, that's, that's Joseph in Egypt. That's the queen. He's, the people that he lists off as the mummies are very prominent people. Mm-hmm. Naturally, he, he would have come in contact with Abraham himself and Abraham's own writings himself that would have just meandered across the, and, the and oceans he, and into his hands. So I don't, think, I don't think it was a mummy, but I think it was one of the scrolls belonged to Joseph in Egypt, which he never got around to translating. So, like, why? Mm. Like, if God preserved Joseph's scrolls. Anyway, that's to me. I feel like those would be important things to read. Okay. So in speaking of the Book of Mormon, though it seems more fitting for the Book of Abraham, as we still have the scrolls today, we, we don't have the golden plates from the Book of Mormon. Nibley states, do you want to read that? Joseph Smith proceeds to lay himself wide open to the ridicule of scholars by a number of very daring Egyptian interpretations. The only way to judge these is to present the documents to Egyptian scholars who have no knowledge of their history in America and compare their judgments with each other and with the prophets. This has never been done. So, in speaking of the Book of Abraham, he notably is referring to the Book of Mormon, but we don't have that, so what we do have is the scroll. So, in 1912, the New York Times published a newspaper article that informed the world that Joseph Smith had lied about the translation of the Book of Abraham. What he had translated was indeed not what had been written. And in, in the Gospel Topics essays today, it says, None of the characters on the papyrus fragments mention Abraham's name or any of the events recorded in the Book of Abraham. And if you're going to go with the miss- missing scroll theory that we're missing the part that Joseph Smith did actually make into the Book of Abraham, that doesn't make sense either because if you if you measure it all, we're only missing a tiny bit. And Joseph is tying the facsimiles that are funerary texts to, directly to what he has translated. So it, that doesn't make any sense. Joseph just could not translate the scrolls at all. So number six is just other arguments that they talk about. And I... So... So Nibley brings up the problem of polygamy. Regarding polygamy, Nibley dismisses the entire argument by saying that Brody's sources are, quote, extremely weak. He goes on to say, In any city in the United States, almost any day of the year, young women may be found making vivid, full, circumstantial, and sincere accusations against attackers, which are found upon investigation to be nothing more than the objects of their own overwrought desires and imaginings. I think that's where I swore. Yeah, it is. Yeah, this is... This whole quote is terrible. Extremely so he's, sexist. What do you, it, sum up what he's saying in different words. He's saying, oh, it happens all the time that young women make up their assaults. And they're like, they, they're just making it up. They just have really vivid imaginations. And, and they just like really enjoy being the center of attention. And therefore they tell everybody that they've been assaulted. So, yeah, he's saying, and to me, I'm reading, women are saying or telling lies that they're Joseph's polygamous wives. Mm-hmm. It's just all a lie. So he just brushes it off super casually. And, and he only dedicates, I think, a paragraph to this whole thing. And Brody has chapters and chapters in her index is like, full of these wives of how many that were married, how many weren't married, how many, like, like his approaches to marrying them, like, it's, and how he hid it. Like, anyway, it's, it's wrong of bro or wrong of nibley to just brush on such a huge thing under the rug and then also later in the book he um do you want to read this one hold on i went before you move on oh sure not just wrong to brush it under the rug but to also like insult half of the population oh that is extremely insulting yeah i didn't even sit on that part but like <sighs> he he's that is a very sexist comment to say 
mm-hmm. that he, he's going to believe the men automatically because women just go around and tell these stories. Vivid, full, circumstantial, and sincere accusations. In any city in the United States, on any day of the year, young this women are found to tell these all lies. all the time. I just want to, like, scream. Anyway. Yeah, that is really bad. Yeah. What a really bad thing to say. Yeah. I hate that. I hate that. Okay, moving on. Okay, so, Hunibly makes this comment near the very end of the pamphlet. Um, he says, Emma Smith and Eliza Snow were not acquainted with the oversexed rake that Mrs. Brody knows so well. And I thought it was funny that, so this is the only other reference to polygamy, I think, um, that Nibley gives. But what I think is funny is that Eliza R. Snow, one of the women he is quoting, or not quoting, but whatever. Um, Eliza R. Snow, when asked about a physical relationship with Joseph Smith, Eliza R. Snow stated simply, I thought you knew Joseph better than that. So, like, someone's asking her if she's a virgin, and this is her response. And to me, that means, no, I am not a virgin. Like, Joseph was, I would never say it this far, but Joseph was an oversexed rake. Those are, those are Nibley's words. Like, you could literally take that either way. You could say, oh, I thought you knew Joseph better than that. Of course not. Or you can say, I thought you knew Joseph better than that. Of course Yeah, it could go either way, I guess. It could go either way, but, like... But we know, (laughs) and and Von Brody points this out, that he... We don't know if he had sexual relationships with all 35 of his wives, but we know for sure from the historical record that at least nine of them, he consummated those marriages. And why wouldn't he with the rest of them? And according to the Book of Mormon, the only thing that makes polygamy good is if you're raising up seed, which means if you're having sex with these wives. Which so. he didn't raise up any seed. So, <coughs> so why did he have so many wives? Yeah. What was the purpose? Yeah, so... I, it's it's not very... I want to say, is it disingenuous the right word of Nibley to just brush over this whole... People have wrote books, written books and books about Joseph's It has polygamy. to be disingenuous. Like, it has to be... He has to know and is just brushing over it because, like... When was Nibley um, in the church? In the 40s. In the 40s. Or the, he wrote this in the 40s. So, it what, like polygamy was still happening in the church until 1920s. That was mm-hmm. only 20 years beforehand. Mm-hmm. I guess it's possible he just didn't know. Like, I don't know what was happening in the church when my mom was my age, I guess. But, I don't know. That seems... He, he seems... Either he's hiding a lot of things... Or Hugh Nibley really doesn't understand church history at all. Yeah. Okay, so one thing that I will give um, Nibley credit for, but Brody also already corrected it in her work, is the word Nauvoo. So, although corrected in her later editions, in her earliest edition, Fawn Brody made the claim that the word Nauvoo had sprung, quote, fresh from Joseph's fancy. And though few of his pedant followers were troubled that the word was not listed in their Hebrew dictionaries, most of the saints were pleased with the choice. Nauvoo had the melancholy music of a morning dove's call and somehow matched the music of the site. Um, Hugh Nibley is careful to point out Brody's mistake, that Nauvoo does indeed mean beautiful, and he even goes so far as to say that, quote, Mrs. Brody can put her stuffed morning dove back into its box now. Her philology is the same brand as her history. I just think he's really rude. (laughs) He's super rude. (coughs) And I loved her words, and he's just mocking her word choice. The melancholy music of a morning dove. And he's like, go stuff your morning dove. Into a box. Into a box. Another thing I want to talk about is the true name of the church. Do you want to read it or? Yeah. 
Okay, so Brody never mentions the true name of the church, though great importance has always been placed upon it by the Mormons. For if she lets out that the church received its long title by revelation in 1838, her picture of endless and dubious gropings suffers an eclipse. The name describes a very specific thing and implies an unvarying and uncompromising program. It is undeviating and unshakable firmness of the prophet. So one of the things that Nibley points out is is um, Brody's um, seeing Joseph in a very evolutionary way. Like he started off as this, as having this one mindset and then he's He's evolving into into this bigger image of the church and bigger, I don't know. She's mapping this evolution of Joseph, of his theology, of everything. And Nibley is trying again and again to say that that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. But even the name of the church, I'm not exactly sure why he's pointing this out and why he says the true name, why it would end. So she's, um, she's saying that the church has endless and dubious gropings trying to find itself. And he's saying, but they received revelation in, uh, in 1838 of what their name is going to be. So that means that that's wrong. It does not have endless and dubious gropings. What do endless and dubious gropings mean? I'm not what I'm not sure what he's referring to, but it's like like trying to find. Something. So I guess in my mind, I was seeing it as as that evolution of Joseph, of the evolution of the church, and mm-hmm. it's growing. But the title of the church, the church has had three to four different titles. Yes. Yeah, so and so it does seem like an evolving thing. Yeah. Like, I think, so, yes. I think it does. Like, cause, so he says that they received their long title, title by Revelation in 1838. But they before then, they had two other names. So, yeah, so what, is, what does he mean that it's unvarying and uncompromising? Yeah. So, yeah. So his arguments just doesn't make any sense. Like, so... The name describes a very specific thing and implies an unvarying, un- uncompromising program. It is undeviating, unshakable firmness of the prophet. Like, Except for that it's changed. It's not. So in 1830 times. or 1829 even, the church was called the Church of Christ. And then 1834, they called themselves the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And it's on the Kirtland Temple. And then, he, as he points out, in 1838, it's called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I just threw this on there for kicks. The church... Legally, is actually called the Corporation of the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I didn't know that until recently. That feels terrible to me. But anyway, so this this whole name of the church, I don't know why he pointed that out as evidence towards Joseph when it seems to say it's against it. It's against him. I, yeah, because changing the name of your church three times as a god seems kind of like a, a, a varying and compromising thing to do yeah. <laughs> and like if you're a god and you're like let me name my church hold on let me think about this let's call the church of christ no four years later the church of latter-day saints actually you know what i thought about it really hard for four years the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints like, right why are you changing the name of your church four times or three well yeah four times um if you're a god who is naming the church very specifically to set it apart from the rest of the world yeah so it is varying it is comp it is compromising and it is deviating and it is shakeable i guess is yeah. what i'm seeing uh, yes. more than anything yeah another aspect is Hugh Nibley talks a lot about the unchanging doctrine of the church if joseph smith were to walk into a conference of the mormon church today he would find himself completely at home and if he were to address the congregation they would never for a moment detect anything the least bit strange unfamiliar or old-fashioned in his teachings. Yet of all the churches in the world, only this one has not found it necessary to readjust any part of its doctrine in the last hundred years. 
<laughs> oh boy. Way to start. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so I still have more quotes about this specifically. Nobody says, how does Brody explain the fact that the doctrine which she claims was the haphazard outgrowth of the complete opportunism remains the most stable on earth? She doesn't. He also says, the gospel has never been worked over or touched up in any way and is free of revisions and alterations. Just, Again, this is hilarious. <clears throat> which feels really ironic because Joseph himself did a lot of the changings and alterations and revisions. Like, he himself, <clears throat> he himself oversaw the first several editions of the Book of Mormon being changed. He changed the Book of Commandments. Like, he's the one who did so much of the changing. And not to mention, I don't know that this had happened yet, but, like, the blacks in the priesthood, we had to stop doing polygamy. Like, there are so many things that have changed since Joseph Smith was in this church. So Gregory Prince, an LDS historian, said, If the members of the church took the time to read their own history, they will understand that not a single significant LDS doctrine has gone unchanged throughout the entire history of the church. That's a big statement to make. Yeah, that is a big statement to make. And so, like, Brody, or excuse me, so Nibley is 100% wrong in his ideas that the doctrine doesn't change. Like, this is the most steady religion in the world. Joseph would be totally comfortable going into conference and... He'd say it. All the things he said would be like, do you think he'd go and hit up young women's and find one of the Maya maids to marry? I think he would be upset that we weren't living polygamy. (laughs) Joseph would feel more at home, I think, with the the FLDS, the fundamentalists. They're way more similar to the religion than he started. Well, they they still wear the same garments. They still practice, like, the Adam-God theory. They they do everything the same way. I don't know if he he like how they dress, because it doesn't really fit in with anyway that's a different thing okay so as far as the conclusion my overall opinion of no ma'am that's not history is that nibley carelessly sets up straw men and then massacres them with his torch he is a man ignorant of church history and the changes to its doctrine and policies as oak says there's little difference in the two no ma'am that's not history is simply another case of the facts stating one thing and nibley stating another i think the best part about his pamphlet is honestly its title yeah, that was pretty creative. Yeah, no, ma'am, that's not history. Like, no man knows my history. I don't know. That was just really good. And then this last <laughs> slide, I won't read it all, but the last slide is just the the praise for reading Fawn Brody's book, No Man Knows My History. Um, uh, well, I'll read it. Ronald O'Barney says it's well-written. Gregory Prince says it's one of the most important books. He says it's a remarkable biography of Joseph Smith. So, again, if you haven't read it, you should go read it or go back and listen to the episodes that we covered the episodes that we did covering it. So so both of these quotes are by active members of the church. One of them is the co-editor for the Joseph Smith Papers. The other one is Gregory Prince, the scientist and Mormon historian and active member of the church. I already said that. Gregory Prince, the historian and scientist. So don't be afraid to read this book. It's really good. Just totally ignore everything that Hugh Nibley said. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts on his booklet? Um, I hated it, and let's never read it again. <laughs> I'm really glad I read it though, just because like Mormons or active members seem to use that as a tool against her book, but I don't think anyone's read it. Yeah, they don't, I don't think that either any of them have read either of them. Yeah, so so we read it so that you don't have to. <laughs> but anyway, you okay. should do it. TLDR. <laughs> I too long didn't read. <laughs> okay. didn't read. Well, book. thanks for joining us, and we will hopefully get back to this soon with other episodes. So. Anyway. Thanks thanks for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs>